Are you looking for truth from God's word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Clarity Christian College, formerly known as Florida Bible College. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Well, today's message is called Knowing Who and Whose You Are. It sounds like a little tongue-twisting phrase right there. But I believe that if we understand who we are and whose we are, that might help us to be able to face these times and thrive during these difficult times in our life. And so I'd like to speak to that. You know, scientists tell us that perhaps over the last 40 years, a tremendous amount of study has gone into the way we look at ourselves. And they've come to the conclusion that often the way we look at ourselves will determine how we think and how we act. And so if we look at ourselves properly, we might be able to see ourselves acting a little bit better than we do. In fact, they like to use the terms self-worth or self-esteem or maybe self-perception. And so they'll even go as far to say that if, um, if you act like a victim, then it's probably because you think like a victim. If you act like a loser, it's because you probably see yourself as a loser. If you look at yourself as being uncreative, then you'll be uncreative. And so that's the negative way. Then they'll say that if you look at yourself and see some positive characteristics within you and you see yourself as successful, you'll become successful. Now, when I read that and I hear that even in churches, I sometimes think that's a lot of psycho babble going on, isn't it? There can't be a lot of truth in that. But I can go back to a verse that was written in scripture thousands of years ago, and it was in the wisdom book of Proverbs that says this, as a person thinks in himself, he'll become that. So is he. So there is an element in truth in that. And I think if we go back to Scripture and we begin to see ourselves through the eyes of God, then we're going to look at ourselves not through the eyes of science or socialization, but we're going to look at ourselves the way God wants us to properly look at ourselves. Well, the Scripture is replete with all of that. But today I'm going to just stay in one portion of Scripture. And from that, we're going to receive ways that we see God identifying us as Christians because of who we are and whose we are. You know, sometimes as we were kids growing up, we might have gone to the fair. Do you remember when they used to have those strange mirrors that you'd get in front of that mirror? It didn't make you look tall or short or wide. Do you remember those funhouse mirrors? How many remember those? You ever been? And so sometimes we look at ourselves through the eyes of even other people. It's the way they look at us that might cause us to think the way we think. And that's really not the healthiest way to do this. Now, it is good to have people's input. Maybe they can point out some blind spots, and we ought to be open to that. And when we hear that, we run it through the grid of Scripture. We sense where we are, be humble and open. But at the same time, we're still going to allow the Holy Spirit. We're going to allow His Word. We're going to allow God to define who we are and whose we are from a biblical perspective. Then we'll have a right understanding of who we are and the way the Lord has truly made us. So I hope with that in mind, let's begin to talk about how important this is, especially in the context of Scripture. Those of you that were beginning with us in this journey of Peter writing to a group of Christians that have kind of been dispersed around, they were facing some tremendous trials of persecution, as they would. Here's the new church beginning. It's spreading all around. It's now coming against a secular worldview that was so opposite from their worldview that they were getting a lot of persecution. People were in political office that were very much despots and domineering kings that would do whatever they want and they just unleashed the fury of hell against Christians. So you could see why Christians would begin to look at themselves and say, I, I really am a nothing and what I believe in must be nothing and it's not worthwhile. And yet Paul still speaks to them. Now, I look at our world today. It's not a whole lot different. 
Especially when you have so-called Christians that are now telling us that the world is going to come to an end and they've gotten thousands, millions of dollars of support through all of that and they put up billboards everywhere and they've gone nationwide with it. It's been viral saying that the world is going to come to an end and these are people that purport to be Christians. They say they're Christian. They have national Christian radio programs. People have been listening to them for years and a certain segment of the church at large has chosen to believe that. And so now, because they believed in a false teaching, what was the end result of all of that? Once again, Christians are looked upon as a caricature of life. And so you go back to work tomorrow and you say, I'm a Christian. I guarantee you, whether it's school or at work or whatever club you're in, immediately you're going to see from some people a smirk on their face. They're going to look at you. They're going to make comments about Judgment Day and you didn't make it. This is your hell and all this kind of stuff. Again, we're fighting the persecutions of the world. And of course, that's very minor when you have someone that doesn't look at you. But some of you might be going through a lot more. You've come to faith in Christ. You've, you've, you've planted your flag in the Bible and become very strong. And your family has essentially turned against you. They mock you behind your back. They leave you out of family reunions. They marginalize you. And you feel pretty much alone. And it's very easy for Satan to then begin to make you feel like you as a Christian are truly a second-class citizen, a second-class religion, a second-class person. When in reality with God, you, because you've trusted Christ as Savior, you've been born again into his family. And you are a child of the king. You're a king's kid. And God has a lot to say about who we are and whose we are. If you look at the little list I've given to you, you can kind of see where we're going. I wanted to have those actually printed so you can own them for yourself. So you can see who you are and whose you are. First of all, you are a chosen person. You are a people that belong to the Lord. You are living stones. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, special people belonging to God. Now that might be a mouthful, but it is just rich with knowing who you are because of Christ. And finally, you are a mercy receiver, one that has received from the Lord grace and mercy that brought you into that forever relationship that made you a part of who you are and whose you are as a Christian. But from the passage, I would like to take from it four truths and these four truths, I'd like you to just know that I could spend an entire sermon on each one of these. It was so, so powerful. But I'm just going to give you the mountain peaks on it today because I'd like you to have it all at one time so that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God to the child of God to give you more peace with the Son of God. So let's look at it. As a member of God's family, how should we look at ourselves? Well, first of all, I am chosen, precious, and acceptable. I am chosen, precious, and acceptable before the Lord. Now, if you will, look at the verse I have for you here. This verse is really referring not to you and me as much as it's referring to the Lord himself. It says, as you come to the Lord, a living stone rejected by men, referring to the Lord. But in the sight of God, the Lord is chosen and precious. Now, you might be saying, well, I, I thought you want me to be chosen and precious. Isn't that the point you're trying to make here? Well, I believe if you would read through the entire text of our passage today, chapter 2, verses 4 through 11, Here's what you're going to glean from it in overall perspective. Jesus Christ was absolutely perfect, and yet the world rejected him so soundly that he went to the cross to pay for the sins of the world. And so he was rejected, and yet his own father said, you were chosen for this, you were precious for this, you were acceptable in my sight. The propitiatory payment for our sin was all done for us. Later on in the passage, because we trusted Christ as Savior, we're very much like Christ. Lives they rejected Christ, they will reject us. But like God the Father looked at his son and said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Because we've trusted Christ, we're accepted in the beloved one and we are chosen. We are precious in his sight and we've been accepted in the forever one, the beloved one. 
into God himself through Christ. And so that tells me right now that I am special. I'm special because I can identify with Christ and just like Christ was honored by the Father. You folks in here that are Christians, you are so much honored by the Father. And don't allow people then to frame you or to define you of just who you are and the kind of people that you are wanting to become because you really want to become more and more like Christ. Sometimes we get our acceptance from our parents, sometimes from our peers, sometimes from our partners, sometimes it's just people out in life. And, and I know they will speak into us and they might help us to stay within the right way, but at the same time, make sure that we allow ourselves to be truly defined by the word of God and what God wants us to be. Because people, they can laugh you into hell, but they can't laugh you out. The people of the world, they can laugh you into a direction in life, but sometimes those people can never get you out of that. And when we stand before the Lord as believers in Christ, we're going to stand before him all alone. And at that time, we have to give an account. And God says that you're in my forever family by faith alone. And I believe that's very important. Now, if you look around you, maybe not so much in our sanctuary today, but if you look around at the people that you live with, maybe the people that you go to work with or go to school with, when you really look at them, do you see them really perhaps trying to be accepted by others? I remember when I was much younger, you know, we all struggle with it. I'm not immune to it either. I remember when I was, it was in the early 60s and I was living on the East Coast of the, of the United States. And when I was on the East Coast, uh, surfing was just beginning in about 1962, 63. And so I was at the front end of all of that. In fact, I only knew of one surf shop in South Florida. And so at that surf shop, I'd go by there every week just, you know, wanting to touch the surfboard, smell the fiberglass, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I remember I wasn't much of a surfer, didn't really know much how to surf at all. But I knew how to right, wear the right clothes, the hang ten outfits. I painted up my, my notebook for school so it would look like a, a, a stripe, a stringer on a surfboard. I had my mom and dad finally talk them into allowing me to put a surfboard decal on our car. And I thought, man, was I really cool. It wasn't hard to be out in the sun, so my hair was bleach blonde. I had chocolate skin practically from the sun. I looked like a surfer. I could talk like a surfer. I could even swagger like one probably. But I sure couldn't stand up on a surfboard. I wanted to be accepted by the people that were all around me to think that I was cool. Now, you may laugh at me, but some of you are going down memory lane and you remember the times that you are. And maybe perhaps even now some of you, you think to be accepted, you have to have the, drive the right car, buy the right house, or have the right career, go to the right college or something, just so that you can be accepted. Now, a certain amount of that is normal. But when it begins to define you and it begins to drive you and it becomes your core value, that begins to warp you. And then you'll really be hindered in that intimacy with the Lord that we so badly want. And so we do struggle with that. So really the issue is, is what does the Lord really think of us and how important we are to the Lord, how important that is. I remember wanting to be accepted even in school and sports that when we'd go out and sometimes they wouldn't have the team, so they'd pick the best two athletes. This team here, best athlete for that team. And those guys then would look over the crowd of guys and choose up the people they wanted on their team. Now, I wasn't much of an athlete. I, I really wasn't. Wasn't smart either, couldn't play an instrument. I probably was at the low end of the food chain on any reason to be accepted by anybody. But I was excited, hoping that I would be chosen. And I wouldn't be chosen. This guy, he wouldn't choose me. Back to this guy. I was the last guy often chosen. And then it was, oh, I got to take Stanley. You know, you can imagine what that was like. We all struggle with those kinds of things. But it wasn't until you came into understanding who you are in Christ that it began to show you that God chose you. I remember if I, if I, if I had the, the greatest moment of my life to be chosen was this special event. It's when I took Carol. And we drove out to a 
a fishing pier area with a bunch of fishing boats. It was late in the evening and the sun was setting on Biscayne Bay. And I looked at Carol and I said, Carol, you led me to Christ. We've had a relationship of growing in the word. I've gotten permission from your dad. I would like to know, will you marry me? And her answer was simply this, yes, I will. Out of all the people all over the world to ever be chosen, would be, a chose, be chosen by your wife. So let me ask you personally, do you remember a time that you weren't chosen for a promotion, you weren't chosen for a team, you weren't chosen for a special office, you weren't chosen to be a part of something, in fact, you were forgotten and left out when things were being put together, do you remember the pain that you had? You're in a room full of people like that. But do you also remember the time that you were selected, very special by someone, Someone perhaps saw something in you, saw something in a way that you could live a life or do something that would add value to them or to the team or to the group, and they said, we want you. Well, I don't know where you are because we probably are on both sides of that, but let me just tell you right now, the person who chooses you is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, I love you, and I prove my love to you when I died on Calvary, and that by placing your faith alone in me, you can have eternal life. You are chosen and you are special with the Lord. Now, there may be some of you here today that don't understand that when we accept Christ into our life, when we trust him as our savior, we receive him, when we place our faith in him, then we become a part of his family. Do you realize that God says to you, I accept you. Can you imagine the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords of the universe says you might have been rejected by parents. You could have been rejected by a coach. You could even be rejected by a former mate in your life. But he says, it doesn't really matter. But the king of kings says, I receive you. Isn't that wonderful? Now, that doesn't raise your self-esteem. That's biblical self-esteem. It's not based upon performance. It's based upon grace and mercy by the Lord himself. Look at the verse here in Romans chapter 15. It says, Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And I like that because now I have a purpose for living. And that is to bring glory to the Lord because I've been accepted in him. There may be some of you now that are struggling with would not being accepted by your parents. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, he's speaking right to me. He knows something. He's talking about me publicly right now. I'm not. This is for anyone who's listening to me on the radio or here today. But there could be some people in here that have struggled a long time with wanting to be accepted by your parents. When you made a C, they wanted you to make a B. When you made a B, they wanted you to make an A. They were always pushing on you to the point where you were getting so frustrated, you wish you could run away or perhaps do something worse to yourself. You might have been struggling with that. Well, I have two things to say to you if you have not been accepted by your parents. The first I would say this is that by this time in your life as an adult, if you have not gotten any acceptance from your parents, you probably never will because the problem isn't you, the problem is theirs. Now I say that in as most tender love as I possibly can. The second is this, if your parents have not accepted you, there are only two people out of six billion people on this planet. And so put it into perspective that even if they don't, the Lord does. And there are a lot of people who will accept you. Now, that doesn't mean throw your parents away and that we all struggle with it. And maybe you're having trouble accepting your own children. And maybe that's when you need to know that I've been accepted in the beloved one and I'm a partaker of his divine nature. And now I can accept my kids the way they have with their flaws because God has accepted me through Christ with my flaws. Look at this verse in Psalm 2710. Now, specifically, it says, though my father and mother forsake me. And that's stronger than not accepting us. I mean, forsake you. It's like coming home from school and finding that they moved and didn't give you their address. All right. 
Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will, underline that word, will receive me. Now, while it's specifically speaking to father and mother, because there may be that case with you here, let me raise it up a notch for some of you that have gone through some horrific divorces. And perhaps when you've been abandoned by someone that you love so much and you have so much confidence and that you, built, you believe that you have the rest of your life with them, even should they forsake you, I believe the Lord will receive you and he will take care of you. So let me encourage you to remember, just as Christ was rejected by the world, you and I will be rejected by the world. Different degrees, but we still will not own up to them. And that's okay when they don't. But the father looked upon the son and said, chosen, precious, accepted. The father looks upon you as his child and he says, chosen, precious, and accepted. It's in the passage. And you know, when he loves me, everybody else's love and acceptance pales to the Lord's for me. So number one, who we are and whose we are. I'm in his forever family. Therefore, I am chosen, precious, and accepted. Number two, I'm also valuable. Look in verse five, and here's what you read. It says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. Now, how much do you think you're, you're worth for a moment? Maybe some of you would like to Google what a human body is worth and all the chemicals that you might have within you and minerals that you're made out of. And then you email me back and tell me what you find. You'll find perhaps not very, very much. How much are you really worth? So I asked the question then, all right, is God really concerned with my worth? He's not concerned with your net worth. He is concerned with your self-worth. And the self part is how you see yourself through his eyes. So that brings the question, what determines my value? In other words, if I'm valuable, it's not so much the minerals. If you kind of take my body, you crank it all down, and here I'm in a little pile of dust. This is my minerals. What really determines a person's value? It's really two things. It really is what someone will pay for something. Now think about that for a moment. I remember when we were living on the mainland, and this was about 2005, and we were getting ready to put our house in the market. And I thought our house was worth a lot more, so we went to the realtors and they said, you ought to be asking for this. We couldn't sell our house for over three years, and we kept lowering the price, lowering the price, lowering the price, lowering the price, because the market was now setting a value on the house, because that's what people would pay for that. Now think about that for a moment. It's what a person will pay for something will really determine what it's really worth. Some of you might think, oh, if I buy this at a garage sale for 25 cents, I could sell it for $5. Well, that's not necessarily the case. It's what people will buy it for. And they usually buy it for 15 cents. So it's really determined on what people will pay for it. I'm thinking about how much people will pay for a baseball card or maybe for a comic somewhere. And some of those baseball cards and comics can go for $10,000. Others see nothing more than comic because something that really messes up my kid's mind. And a baseball card is something you put in the spokes of your, of your bicycle to make it sound like a motorcycle means nothing to you. And I'm thinking about all my cards that I wish I had today and how much they'd be worth. But here's the second thing that'll determine what it's worth. And that is who previously owned what you have. And whoever previously owned it will determine how much value that it has. I'm thinking about Debbie Reynolds right now in June is supposed to auction off all of this memorabilia that she had from the television and movie industry that she was a part of for so many years. She has something like 3,000 items. She bought one dress from Marilyn Monroe for $1,000, and they're already assessing it at $2 million. Now, forget about all of that stuff. It's what people will pay for, and then who would own it? I'm thinking about a 
a pair of shoes, stinky, worn out, crummy looking shoes that was auctioned for $7,000. The reason being because of the person who owned it, Michael Jordan. I put my shoes out at a garage sale. I can't even get 50 cents for those things. <laughs> Nobody cares who had those shoes before, but if they're Michael Jordan, they'd have it. And you're wondering, where am I going with this? Those of you that are pretty much in tune, you'll know where I'm going with it. First of all, how much are you worth is based upon how much you are paid for. And when you think about it, who bought you? None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But what did he pay to buy you? He had to go to this cross, die a humiliating death in front of everybody, did not deserve any of that, not even a portion of all of that. Then he goes to this cross, horribly pained. Then he dies on this cross to give to you eternal life. And that's God himself in the person of Christ doing that for you. So think about what it cost him. It cost God the death of his only son. It cost Christ his own death. It cost the Holy Spirit his involvement in your life to convict you and to bring you to Christ. There was an incredible eternal investment in you so that you would have eternal life. You have value. But then think about again what I just said. Who owns you right now? The Bible does say it was his blood who bought you, but that's true. But it's also true that you've been bought with a price and now you belong to the Lord. And can you imagine what that means to know that the Lord owns you? The value that you have in Christ? So it doesn't matter how many valuables you have. It does matter how valuable you are. It's who you are and whose you are because of Christ. You notice how everything is pointing back to the person and the work of Christ. But it's until we finally rest in that and be satisfied with it, we will continue to fight this inner feeling of wanting self-worth, needing to be accepted, playing the games of the world to get it all, instead of just resting in the fact that God loves me just the way that I am. I was doing an inter a study on the internet of seeing how much people will pay for ransom when someone gets um, kidnapped. Oddly enough, I was surprised. I thought it'd be in the gazillions of dollars, you know, that kind of thing. I found that the average of all the kidnappings that they were able to uh, do their study with over the last few years, you know what the average amount that people paid when a person was kidnapped in their family? This is odd. Only $62,000. Now that's an average, so some may have paid more, some maybe didn't pay anything, you know, but to let them go. I don't know. The ship that was pirated by the Somalian pirates, the most expensive ransom that was paid for a ship was only $6 million. But now you hear all these numbers and all of that, but let's just say for a moment that we go on a mission trip to X country in this world. And while we were there, you and your family are with us on this trip. And one of your children, doesn't matter, was kidnapped. What would you do? How much would you pay to get your child back? That'd be a conversation to have over lunch, huh? I think we'd pay anything and everything. In fact, we would do this. We'd say, I'll give you everything and I will give you me, kidnapper, if you release my family member. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Who you are and whose you are ought to really elevate you to the point that I don't care what struggles we go through in this world, nothing can compare to what he did so I could be in his forever family and I celebrate the goodness of the Lord. How special that is. Well, in this passage, 
We're talking about a living stone. That's an interesting term, that living stone, isn't it? You know, living stone. How many remember? This will date me, I know. How many remember when they were selling pet rocks? Anybody remember? How many bought a pet rock? Don't raise your hand, okay? I don't want to embarrass anybody here. But a pet rock, you know, they had it all decorated up and the kids would talk to it and they would pet. They had a little menagerie of pet rocks in their windowsills, you know, all that kind of stuff, the pet rock. It's really nothing. But I can tell you this, that God, through Christ, is involved in a building program. That's right. He's in the building program. He says, first of all, I'll be the foundation, I'll be the cornerstone, but I'm in a building program and I need different stones to make this building work because I'm going to build it as big as I want it to be. And he says, although I'm the foundation and I'm the cornerstone, you are the other stones that's building this up. Now he's talking about the universal church, the church at large. But he does that through believers that are in local churches. And so I'm a part of that living stone experience with the Lord. I am important. I'm a part of something that he is really building. I hope that you understand that while they still rejected him, they'll reject us. But we can be a part of this forever building that he's having for all of us. I hope that would cause us to to celebrate who we are because of who we are in Christ. This is Joe Pons, and I want to thank you for listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Clarity Christian College. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It's the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. That's makeitclear.org. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please email us at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. That's tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear.